Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have 3 2 and Go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with Marlisha Aho from SEIU 1199, and a special guest joins us for two minutes with Tom to talk about our great internship program here at O'Neill & Associates. First up, 3 2 one, Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look at the world of public affairs, business, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, we talk about the fight to save local journalism and the role of foundations and nonprofits in helping make that happen. And in the real fake news department, TV star Jussie Smollett fakes a hate crime and now his career is in serious jeopardy, as well as his freedom. And finally, the Academy Awards ceremony this year will not have a host. That's right, it's a host-free Oscars. We'll talk about that, and we won't make predictions. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on Air. Kyan, how are you? Good. February vacation week. Yes, crazy. it is. There's kids all over the place. <laughs> there are. There's kids in the everywhere. studio. <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's get to it. All right, Cayenne, first off, it's been a tough year for local journalism in terms of the business model, the sustainability. It's been a tough year for journalism overall. John Chester with the Boston Globe had a piece this week that sort of recaps that, but also um, lays out a path forward or at least uh, some hope with nonprofit support mm-hmm. for various media organizations, um, suggesting that uh, some of that support that's, uh, the, that is coming forward, uh, including um, a, a new announcement by the Knight Foundation to spend $300 million to support local journalism, uh, means that there is, uh, there's some good news. Your thoughts on that? I think it's wonderful. Uh, coming out of Miami from the Knight Foundation, but actually there are going to be some Boston uh, benefits to it. The Ground Truth Project is going to receive $5 million over five years to help pay for reporter salaries through the Report for America initiative. And WGBH's Frontline is going to get another uh, $3 million to to establish some regional hubs um, that are going to work with local newsrooms. We have seen these local newsrooms dwindle down to, you know, I mean, one, two reporters, sometimes part-time, covering multiple towns. We, we, we deal with it every day. Absolutely. Um, I mean, Ch- and Ch- it's sad. Chesto points out that the essentially the business model for community journalism is, is dead. It collapsed. Where you had, it is bare bones. Where you had newsrooms of journalists covering small communities all around Massachusetts and, and New England and the country. Uh, you've got, sometimes it's a one-person operation. Editor, copy editor reporter, photographer, podcast, video, they're doing it all, all of which on the one hand is pretty remarkable. On the other, that means there's so many fewer jobs and it's a real, it's a real issue. And it's really important work. Uh, not only are these local outlets covering local stories, local news, local government, yep. um, but it's also the breeding ground for, you know, how reporters get better and grow and become, you know, reporters on a state or a national stage. Um, we've seen it happen with local television stations as well. Local local cable stations are struggling to stay viable. Uh, so to see sort of somebody say, this is a priority, we need to address it, and here's $300 million, pretty astounding. Yeah. 
this story is, is, is really built around the news of the Knight uh, Foundation um, funding. However, uh, I feel it's important to mention a couple of other initiatives. Uh, Northeastern, BU, both have uh, their own initiatives that are supported uh, with various forms of funding um, uh, to, to, to promote journalism, uh, not just among students, but in different ways in working with news organizations. Yep. And then one that I'm particularly partial to, the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism. That's actually a, a, um, a creation of Chris Ferron, the editor of the Weekly Dig, uh, and a former Boston, former journalist at the former Boston Phoenix. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a terrific initiative. It is all built around um, in-depth investigative reporting, sort of from an alternative media perspective, uh, but it's a great initiative. It's, it's, it's crowdfunded. It's funded from the ground up. It's funded with small donations. I think that's part of the model. Certainly, you're talking about big, big dollars with something like the Knight Foundation, um, but you're also talking about a, a different type of nonprofit model like this, like Binge, the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism, where... You can crowdfund, and people will support journalism because they think it's that important. Yeah, and I think we had a great, you know, kind of taking a sidestep down a tangent a little bit. But earlier this week, we had the teens and students from Wright Boston in our office for um, an afternoon workshop. And these are students from schools throughout the city that are coming together to write, whether it's journalism, poetry, creative writing, and they are putting out their own newspaper quarterly, 15,000 copies, which is astounding. In print. In print. It's, it's, God bless it's, them. It's, um, I mean, honestly, that, that's about the circulation of three, two or three or four community newspapers in different towns in Massachusetts. Yeah. So the Right Boston group is doing Teens in Print, they're calling it uh, Teens, uh, News for Teens by Teens. Yep. Uh, an amazing group of kids. It was. I know they, we really enjoyed it. Right here in the podcast studio yeah. this week. It was a terrific program. We had a shadow day with Wright Boston and Teens in Print, and uh, and we'll be doing more with them. But I think that's a really good example also of uh, of, of, of a model, uh, a different type of model to promote journalism and to get kids involved in writing uh, and, and caring about writing and caring about being being journalists. You might have to get creative, but journalism will, will, will continue. It absolutely will. All right, Cayenne. All right, Kai, and up next, a publicity stunt we are now learning about that really is a publicity nightmare for the television actor Jussie Smollett from the from the show Empire. Uh, people are probably familiar with it because it's been dominating the headlines. Turns out a whole story that he has that he created or that he has been telling uh, with great passion and drama is completely fabricated. Uh, he, was, he, he claimed that he was attacked. He staged it. He paid people that he worked with on the show uh, $3,500 to attack him as some sort of stunt. It's, it's kind of a crazy thing. I got to tell you, um, because I, I sometimes uh, I'm on WRKO on the midday show with my old friend VB. We talked about this a couple times. Not only did I initially believe the story, I came back a second time and doubled down. So my personal credibility <laughs> on this is, is, is absolutely in tatters slash non-existent. But the reality is, who would imagine that an actor would concoct this kind of a story? And that's exactly what he did yeah. uh, to the tune of even, uh, you know, uh, completely bilking Good Morning America yeah. and getting them to put him on TV. And he doubled down on it, too. Absolutely. And he was very indignant. Very indignant. How dare Will it's, he work again in this town? Will you? You'll never work again in this town. Well, he's facing felony charges, so <laughs> there, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> so yeah. probably not. 
Um, you know, I think for him, what's really, there's so many levels of why this is terrible. The outpouring of support he received from the entertainment community, fellow actors, friends, he made all of those people look like they, it, it, he embarrassed exact, them all. So exactly, people people who made real, real serious sort of declarations in his yeah. favor, uh, all over he from took all walks of, of life. It. He took and then how about real? By the way, hate crimes in America are significantly up, according to the FBI. Mm-hmm. How about all the real victims? And that, to me, is what's most sad about this: is he just this does happen? Maybe not at that level, but to people every single day, and it take something away from the people who are actually dealing with this these kinds of hate crimes whether it's racial or or otherwise this is happening and now you're causing people to have to second guess all the other people who are doing that all in the name of I have no idea what I, I can't wait to hear his explanation for how he justified this yeah all right Jesse Smollett PR stunt gone wrong redemption could be many many years away or, or maybe maybe not existed. All right, Cayenne, finally, the Oscars are coming up this Sunday, February 24th, the Academy Awards. Um, whole host of, uh, of interesting films up. I think Black Panther is probably a front-runner to run away with qu- quite a few things, but you've got Vice, you've got uh, a number of... you got a bunch of movies and, 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 and nominees and such. Star is born. A star... <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> Number one, it's a remake of a, wait for it, Chris Christopherson movie. Yeah, it's the fourth version. Uh, it is the fourth. Actually, it's not. It was like a, it was a, there was a one before Chris Christopherson. Yeah, been, and, this, uh, was, this is the fourth. Yeah. Anyway, Star is Born, all this other stuff. But really, um, the, the, the most interesting aspect of the Oscars uh, award show this year is the fact that they've got no host, right? Kevin Hart, there was a whole dispute about... Uh, uh, whether he was going to do it or not, and he's out. And, you know, something we always talk to our clients about uh, who are planning major events or events that we're working with them on is is having a good plan B and a plan C. Mm-hmm. And the bigger event, b- the bigger the event, the more... The more, uh, the more, more subsequent c- plans you need. You need a C, <laughs> D, E, and F. And I think if you're the Academy Awards, you probably ought to get, get down to at least uh, an M, M or N. One would think. But um, so their, their plan B wound up being, okay, we're just going to go with the voiceover, uh, no host, and then the presenters. So we'll see what happens. Um, you, know, you know, maybe it will be the greatest Oscar show ever. It might be. There's been, a, they don't always win with the host. No, and I think, the you know, host, the productions, there have been, been, been hosts who were poor, pa- widely panned for terrible. terrible performances. Yeah. The Oscars is really having on a, if you step back from a larger scale, they're having their own sort of identity crisis. Yeah. Like how important are the Oscars anymore? People aren't tuning in the way they used to. They're incredibly long. Um, you know, the categories that are really important to the industry aren't always the categories that us as viewers are most interested in or really have a stake in. Um, there are all these Oscar sort of subcategories. There's the there's the whole sort of red carpet portion, and there's the Mr. That's my Mr. favorite Black part. Boy, Mr. Black, the the, the, fa- the fashion guy who like oh, you know judging your whether you're dressed. Remember one year uh, Sharon Stone wore like a, a Gap T-shirt to the Oscars. Yeah, she wore just a white Gap shirt. Yeah, I mean all these different things go into the show, but this year everyone is paying attention to what's it going to be like without a host. I think it's going to be just fine. I think it's going to be just fine. The host, uh, I think, extends the show a little bit, so that helps them probably cutting down some time. Um, 
but they've got to figure out a way to make themselves relevant again because they're they're losing viewers and people really are expecting this show to potentially go down in flames too so who knows yeah i mean i'm just one person i think i'm gonna i'm gonna watch the oscars sort of the way i always do which is somewhere between not at all and sort of you know heavy use of the clicker uh and zeroing in on 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 sort of key moments the first award is always like best supporting what uh actor or actress best actor best best actor uh i mean you don't get the good one until the end of the night yeah and i usually don't make it to the to best picture i usually catch that one at like two in the morning on my phone yes I'm going to watch the red carpet, and then I'm going to click back and forth, and I'm going to read about it in the morning. All right, terrific. Oscar's coming up. We're not going to even try to make predictions because we just don't care enough. Nope. All right, Cayenne, (laughs) thanks. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of 321GO. Our program is recorded live in Studio 10A, right off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masera. That's it for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Marlisha Aho of 1199. We're here today with Marlisha Aho, who's the communications director of 1199 SEIU. Massachusetts' largest and fastest growing healthcare union. Thanks, Marlisha, for joining us today. Um, we'd like to talk a little bit about um, some of the things that are happening at SEIU. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization and what you guys are working on? Well, thank you for having me here at OA on the Air. I'm excited. You know, my um, inaugural podcast. Um, <laughs> so um, for 1199, we are the fastest, as you mentioned, the fastest growing union in the state. So we represent over 60,000 healthcare workers, and they're there through every quality stage of life. Um, and so that's maternity to your senior years. And so where, we, where you see our members, that's where we are. And so, you know, it's been really great to be a part of 1199 and see the growth in um, just in the last year we've had a th- over a thousand members who've joined us and so members are seeing the benefit of uniting in a union. This is Jeremy Crockford. I am also here at OA on Air and I work with Marlisha and Laura on issues around 1199 and health care. Um, I wanted to ask you, you, you guys have added a significant number of members this year. A lot of people talk, you hear a lot of talk about labor unions disappearing or dwindling. You guys have added a lot of members. You're growing fast. Where have you seen growth this year? You know, as you meant, as mentioned earlier, the labor movement is resilient and strong. You know, in the last year, you know, we had over a thousand um, workers join us, and that was from. 800 workers at St. Anne's Hospital in Fall River, Massachusetts. Um, that was workers from Martha's Vineyard Hospital, um, as well as some nursing home workers across the state. And so what we've seen is that workers see the power in uniting together. They see that their collective power makes a difference in their workplace and in their communities. And we anticipate that will continue, especially as the attacks against working people continue from the Donald Trump administration and right-wing politicians. And so we anticipate workers will see that there is power in numbers and we will be there to ensure that workers have a voice in whatever needs to happen in their community and in their workplace. Can you talk a little, you know, healthcare is 
if not the largest, one of the largest industries in Massachusetts. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, you know, whether it's legislation or different policies that you guys are advocating for um, to help strengthen what is really the Commonwealth's largest and most important industry? Yes, as you mentioned, you know, I know Partners Healthcare is the largest, you know, employer in the state where we represent over a thousand, 3,000 workers there. And what we've seen, again, one in five workers in the state are um, healthcare workers. And so either you're a healthcare worker or you're receiving healthcare. And so you want to protect that quality care and you want to protect quality jobs. And so, you know, we're going to do that with legislation. You know, there's a lot of talk about healthcare reform, specifically for hospitals and health centers. You know, we want to ensure that there's viability for community care and you're, um, wherever you are in, you know, the nearly 300 towns and um, cities within the state. Um, we want to ensure that, you know, our parents are getting quality home care at home and those who are also getting quality care in nursing homes. So we have to protect that. And that's through funding. That is workforce engagement. And, you know, that is training and education that is expanding because we're seeing a lot of burnout and retention issues. And we want to make sure that healthcare workers stay healthcare workers. I know that, uh, you see a, a story just about every day on the front page about a nursing home closing or nursing home laying off people. They seem to be um, disappearing across the state at a time when they're needed most, when the rapidly aging population is gonna need care. I know you guys represent a lot of people in the nursing home industry. Have you got legislation right now that, that aims to fix some of the problems there? So yes, with the rebalancing of long-term care, you're seeing you know a lot of growth in home care, but nursing homes remain an important part of long-term care. And so for us, we've seen you know Medicaid reimbursement rates stagnate, and that's not viable. And so what we've done is filed a bill called the Emergency Task Force Bill, which studies what's happening in the nursing home industry, ensuring that workers are involved in the process and informing any reforms and making sure that there's a plan in place to put solutions um, to keep people in nursing homes and that they're viable across the state because they're really important. So Massachusetts has a personal care attendant program. Um, it's a really crucial program. Um, and my understanding is that healthcare workers, I think there's 48,000 of them in Massachusetts are currently in contract negotiations. Can you talk a little bit about what this program does and what workers are looking for during these contract negotiations? So personal care attendants take care of our families at home, allow them to live with dignity and respect at home. And with the workforce of over 48,000, you know, with 10,000 people turning, you know, 65 every day, it's really important that this care is there, that quality jobs in home care are present for when I need it or if a family member needs. And so what we're seeing with this next contract is that we want wages to reflect the care that these workers are providing because it's a critical service. Um, we are seeing that they have access to education and training because they want to grow within this field. And they also have access to benefits that, you know, allow them to feel like this is a real profession because it is. But we need to have the benefits and wages and access to training and education that, you know, mirrors the work that they're doing every day. You, SEIU is also, 1199 in particular, is known for getting involved in social issues. You guys have been strongly involved in helping to shape affordable housing policy. You were involved in moving for more to public transportation. Um, you were the leaders in the fight for a $15 minimum wage. 
Why do you do things like housing and transportation when that seems to be beyond the idea of health care? These are important issues. And they're also health care issues. Um, you know, you want to live in a great, you want to live in a home that is safe and healthy. You want to have transportation that is safe and healthy. I mean, all these things impact someone's, um, their, their, uh, their well-being. And so, and these are also issues that impact our workers. You know, we're not just talking about, you know, as a union about issues at their workplace, but also in their community. And so we cannot avoid that these issues are having an impact on our workers. And we want to ensure that our collective voice is making change in these important areas. Can you talk a little bit about the state of organized labor here in Massachusetts? I mean, I think around the country you've seen you know, there's, we've all read the stories about unions taking a hit. But here in Massachusetts, you guys are growing. Recently, the, the gas workers, they stood up for, you know, the future of the workforce. Can you talk a little bit about what the labor movement is like here in the Commonwealth? I think we're really fortunate in Massachusetts. Um, we are strong and resilient. We have, I think, a legislation legislature that is really supportive of the right to, you know, unionize. And workers are understand their power and understand that they have a voice and they can make change. And so as these attacks continue, workers will continue to push back and set and expand the standards with their contracts, as well as set standards within their communities. So I anticipate that, you know, we will remain strong that doesn't mean attacks won't continue, but labor is here. And I anticipate, you know, we will continue to fight. I know there's um, there's been a lot of discussion of this. You, 1199 represents a lot of the partners' workforce. Um, partners is just the big gorilla in the room. They are adding a billion dollars of new space right near our office here they make an enormous amount of money. They're expanding in places like Saudi Arabia, all around the world. Um, Then you have hospitals like the ones down in my part of the state that are barely breaking even and that desperately need more money to take care of people. What is the state going to do to try to level the playing field here? We have um, legislation that addresses the price variation and talks about, you know, ensuring that the viability of community hospitals, and that includes partners' facilities as well. And so this will be an issue we will be leading on and having a strong conversation with, you know, leaders within partners' healthcare. So is this a way through the legislature, legislation that places like Brockton Hospital and Lawrence Hospital and places like that can start seeing a little bit more of the health care dollar that at least tries to level the playing field with the big teaching hospitals? Yes, it's very important to receive care in the community that you reside in. And this bill will do that. We anticipate that based on the response so far from our bill, that there's a lot of interest in supporting this because it's an issue. One third of uh, um, hospitals in Massachusetts are not financially viable. And so we need to change that because that's the care that people go to wherever what in their communities. And so this is not, this is a really important issue that we have to advocate for. So I think uh, I think we've covered most of the bases. You guys have grown. You guys are growing. You'll continue to grow in the coming year. Um, you're moving to try to level the playing field for some of the community hospitals, and you're uh, working on issues of social justice, minimum wage, housing, public transportation. 
Uh, all in all, it was great to have you in. Thank oh, you. Thank you. And, you know, we'll see, you know, a lot of this work is in coalition with community organizations. And so we're really excited to be part of these coalitions that are moving these um, important issues to the top of the top of the list. And so I anticipate this is just the beginning and we've won a lot, especially with the Raise Up Bass Coalition. And so I anticipate, you know, in the next year or two, that we will continue to do that because these are important issues that all workers want to address. And now a special guest for Two Minutes with Tom. So, Two Minutes with Tom, we are here with Nairi Norigian. Did I say it right? Yes. I'm still struggling with your new last name. Um, So, thank you for filling in. Nairi is our It's a big honor. These are big shoes. They are big shoes. Um, Vice President of Operations and oversees our internship program. Yes. Which is... Pretty amazing here at O'Neill and Associates, if I do say so myself. Sure is. I would say so as well. <laughs> and you can, and you should. So it's currently February vacation. Yes. Uh, but we are looking into intern hiring for the summer at this point, correct? That is correct. So we're currently accepting applications for mm-hmm. anyone out there who mm-hmm. might be interested or might have a child, niece, nephew, grandchild, whatever, who might be interested. Right. Uh, but can you talk about our program a little bit? Absolutely. Thanks. We have a wonderful program that I am uh, myself a product of. That's true. Yes. You came in as an intern. 17 And never years left. Ago. I never left. That's amazing. I know. I still am surprised every time I hear that. Does it surprise you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but now to be uh, in charge of it is a wonderful honor. And um, we're, we're very proud of all of the interns that we bring through the doors each semester. We run programs in the fall, spring, and summer. Mm-hmm. And each semester, I'd say there's about 10 or so interns. Uh, they come from all different schools around the Boston area. Um, and then in the summertime, we have more students who... Uh, come from schools out of state, but are from the Boston area, so that's nice as well. And we have a mentor program, so each intern is assigned to a mentor, and this is their main point of contact person that they check in with and get most of their assignments from. Um, and that's one of the greatest things about this program is the mentors, um, like yourself, Aw, thanks. star mentor. Huh? Um, you hear that? <laughs> and as I interview the students, I always try to play matchmaker in my head of who here would be a good mentor matchup based on what the st- student is studying as well as what the mentors look for in their interns as well. So it's a great learning opportunity. And, um, you know, each each year I'd say we hire um, several. Yeah. We several have a lot interns. of interns that have t- gone on to become employees here. That's right. We have six. You are not the only one. I'm not the only one. We, we currently have six former interns on staff. And wow, I didn't even realize. It. And I did some math. Over the last 17 years, we've hired 31 others. See, being an intern means great things. It does. I will share. Not just here, but elsewhere in in the working world. And it is. It's it's mm-hmm. great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we offer people the opportunity to learn about both public relations and government relations, right? And how they work together, right? Which is what we do here. Uh, we you. We get really smart interns, too. We do. Awesome. I know. And they're super helpful. They are. And become really an integral part of sort of their their teams, of, mm-hmm. how, we, of how we work. Right. 
and we they love come from them. We love having them. They come from all different backgrounds, studying all kinds of things, from political science to English to broadcast journalism. No matter what it is, if they have an interest in public relations, government relations, public affairs, Tom O'Neill, whatever it might be, we will bring them in for an interview and select the top of the crop. Okay, so. I would say uh, to anyone out there who's mm-hmm. interested, yes, how do they get in touch with us? They check out our website. They look at the requirements. And if they feel that they are qualified and interested, then they submit their resume and cover letter to me and Norikin at O'NeillAndAssos.com. And for the summer program, summer 2019, our deadline is March 1st. And then for any subsequent uh, semesters just make sure to monitor the website because we always post our deadline and after that uh, interviews are conducted and we have our program pretty much set um, by I'd say April okay yeah all right so March 1st is the current deadline for mm-hmm. summer if people mm-hmm. are interested go to the website yes or email you directly and um, come apply you come apply know. you never know Great opportunities await. Thanks, Nairi. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Talk to you next week.